When he had finished the will, he wished to proceed to a choice of his last words. He wanted to know how the following words, as a dying exclamation, struck me. I die for my God, for my country, for freedom of speech, for progress, and the universal brotherhood of man. I objected that this would require too lingering a death. It was a good speech for a consumptive, but not suited to the exigencies of the field of honor. We wrangled over a good many anti-mortem outbursts, but I finally got him to cut his obituary down to this, which he copied into his memorandum book, proposing to get it by heart. I'd die that France might live. I said that this remark seemed to lack relevancy, but he said relevancy was a matter of no consequence in last words. What you wanted was thrill. The next thing in order was the choice of weapons. My principal said he was not feeling well and would leave that and the other details of the proposed meeting to me. Therefore, I wrote the following note and carried it to Monsieur Fortu's friend. Sir, Monsieur Gambetta accepts Monsieur Fortu's challenge and authorizes me to propose Placy Piquet as the place of meeting. Tomorrow morning at daybreak as the time, and axes as the weapons. I am, sir, with great respect, Mark Twain. Monsieur Fortu's friend read this note and shuddered. Then he turned to me and said with a suggestion of severity in his tone, Have you considered, sir? What would be the inevitable result of such a meeting as this? Well, for instance, what would it be? Bloodshed. Well, that's about the size of it, I said. Now, if it is a fair question, what was your side proposing to shed? I had him there. He saw he had made a blunder, so he hastened to explain it away. He said he had spoken jestingly. Then he added that he and his principal would enjoy axes, and indeed prefer them. But such weapons were barred by the French Code, and so I must change my proposal. I walked the floor, turning the thing over in my mind, and finally it occurred to me that gatling guns at fifteen paces would be a likely way to get a verdict on the field of honor. So I framed this idea into a proposition. But it was not accepted. The code was in the way again. I proposed rifles, then double-barreled shotguns. Zelig by Benjamin Rosenblatt Old Zelig was eyed askance by his brethren. No one deigned to call him Reb Zelig, nor to prefix to his name the American equivalent, Mr. The old one is a barrel with a stave missing, knowingly declared his neighbors. He never spends a cent, and he belongs nowheres. For to belong on New York's east side is of no slight importance. It means being a member in one of the numberless congregations. Every decent Jew must join a society for burying its members, to be provided at least with a narrow cell at the end of the long road. 
Zelig was not even a member of one of these. Alone, like a stone, his wife often sighed. In the cloak shop where Zelig worked, he stood daily, brandishing his heavy iron on the sizzling cloth, hardly ever glancing about him. The workmen despised him, for during a strike he returned to work after two days' absence. He could not be idle, and thought with dread of the Saturday that would bring him no pay envelope. His very appearance seemed alien to his brethren. His figure was tall and of cast-iron mold. When he stared stupidly at something, he looked like a blind Samson. His gray hair was long, and it fell in disheveled curls on gigantic shoulders, somewhat inclined to stoop. His shabby clothes hung loosely on him, and both summer and winter the same old cap covered his massive head. He'd spent most of his life in a sequestered village in Little Russia, where he tilled the soil and even wore the national peasant costume. When his son and only child, a poor widower with a boy of twelve on his hands, emigrated to America, the father's heart bled. Yet he chose to stay in his native village at all hazards and to die there.